1: But when the war broke out, the people tried to choose side or try to avoid choosing side. Their lives were filled with uncertainty, insecurity, and chaos. So even for the loyalists who lived under the British occupation, their
0: lives were not easier. That's Zhou Jin Feng, the author of a new article focusing on loyalism, history, and the revolution in New York. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing. Publisher of the new book, Daniel Morgan, A Revolutionary Life, by Albert Louis Zamboni. Available now. Hello everyone, welcome back to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we take a deep dive with JAR contributor Cho chien Qianfeng of St. Louis University about a study of loyalism in New York State during the American Revolution. It's really a fascinating talk. But the idea of loyalism is something that, as historians, we're still wrapping our heads around. For the first, say, 200 years, give or take, after the American Revolution, a very heavy mythology guided the writings and the scholarship of many people that we still revere in the historical field. Loyalism, whether it be an attempt to uh, dismiss them or at worst demonize them, was never really deemed a field worthy of study until probably the last 30 or 40 years. And really, the best work on it, quite honestly, is still coming out today. And that makes us think a little bit about loyalism what it means to be a loyalist, what it means to be a patriot. Um, For me, at the end of the day, it's all politics. I mean, we live in a pretty, you know, newsflash, uh, divided political world today, but I want you to think about the last political argument you had with a good friend or a family member uh, that ended with you, I don't know, say killing them or locking them in prison and arresting them. Um, It just doesn't happen. But those were all very real circumstances in places like New York and Pennsylvania during the American Revolution. It was the hottest political debate in American history. So, one of the things we have to avoid doing, I think, is is looking for good guys and bad guys in history. It's something we like to do. I think it's human nature to do that. Um, But, you know, there's there's heroes on both sides, uh, as they say in the beginning of Star Wars Episode 2. And no one goes into a war saying, you know, hey, I'm the bad guy here. It just doesn't happen. So what Cho Chin Fung will talk about today uh, are the historical writings of two prominent New York loyalists and their interpretation of what caused the American Revolution and, and how it played out and who was to blame. And you'll find it to be, especially if you read his article at allthingsliberty.com, uh, a very sobering and 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 at least seemingly objective analysis. You have to remember about loyalism before we make it a dirty word. Uh, for these people, you know, they were patriots in a way. Um, they were born and raised British, their parents were born and raised British, their grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents all the way back were born and raised into an English world. Uh, They had a sense of justice. They had a sense of law and order. Uh, It was a British sense of justice. They believed even if they had major problems with things like the Sugar Act and the Stamp Act, uh, that the British system allowed for those problems to be solved and that bloodshed was not required. After the American Revolution, many of these loyalists will flee to Canada uh, and will be the first, you know, in a way, sort of founders of a, of a British-Canadian world uh, that will last for another 200 years. Um, but, you know, history could be very different if the American revolutionaries failed. And remember, at Valley Forge, the darkest of days for the United States in its infancy, uh, that was a very real possibility. So whenever we talk about loyalism, and we'll be dealing with this more in upcoming episodes as well, we have to challenge ourselves uh, to minimize our biases. Now, one mistake a lot of, I think, historians make in the beginning and people who read and engage in history and scholarship is that they say, I want to eliminate my biases. Well, you cannot eliminate your bias. Uh, You are a human being. You can't do it. What you can do, and this is what we all should strive for, is identify your bias, and recognize how it limits your scholarship. By doing that, then you can control it. You can never eliminate it, but you can identify it and try your best to work with it, if not around it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Cho Chien Feng. Cho Chien Feng, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us about your background.
1: Okay, I'm a PhD candidate at St. Louis University. I'm originally from Taiwan. I received my bachelor's degree and master's degree in Taiwan. My master's master's thesis was about uh, Edmund Burke um, and his American policy. But after that, I went to Utah State University to study U.S. history. So after receiving a master's degree at Utah State University, I came to St. Louis University for a PhD degree. So I'm here with my wife, and I have three kids.
0: What first drew your interest into this topic?
1: Oh, well, that's a great question. So honestly, I so in the beginning when I was in college, I was really interested in 18th century, especially Enlightenment movement. So when I was in Taiwan, I studied English Enlightenment. So that's why I chose Edmund Burke to write about. But then when I studied Edmund Burke's American policy, I figured out that I had more interest in the American Revolution. So that's why I came to the States to start the American Revolution. But when I the American Revolution, I figure out that, oh, I'm very interested in the Loyalists who were kind of neglected in historical for a while. So that, then my next question will be, so, I mean... There's so many colonies. So which one I want to pick to study? Then I choose New York because New York was one of the strongest, um, like British space during the revolutions. And then they have a lot of debates between the loyalists and patriots. So I think that that's a good place to study the loyalism.
0: We hear this a lot, loyalist. Uh, it's becoming a much more meaningful term to us in the last 10 years or so. How do you define loyalist?
1: Okay, that's a huge question. So no, sometimes I really don't like to categorize people, but for the convenience of for writing and also for readers, it's very difficult to avoid categorizing people into different groups. But the truth is people are not numbers in statistics, but have real feelings and complex ideas and sometimes make ambiguous choices. So in the context of the American Revolution, I think I would define loyalists as the people who did not want to separate from the mother country, which means that they wanted to remain loyal to the, British, to the Great Britain, no matter how many complaints they might have to the British. So in this definition, I, I exclude those who did not know what they wanted in terms of the issue of independence.
0: What was life like in New York at this time? I mean, how do you describe the political fissures that emerge uh, between patriots and loyalists during the revolution?
1: Uh, I mean, during the war, I mean, New York was, the in the beginning of the war, New York was the, battle, was the battlefield. But later it was occupied by the British army and navy and thus becoming like a city for the loyalists. And actually, I'm not an expert on the life in New York during the war, but Ruben Chopra, she wrote a book called "Unnatural Rebellion, which can tell a much better story than I can do. And because she has done such a great job, I really have not placed too much emphasis on this in my own research. But when the war broke out, people tried to choose sides or try to avoid choosing side. Their lives were filled with uncertainty, insecurity, and chaos. So even for the loyalists who lived under the British opuca- occupation, their lives were not easier. They wanted their land back, they wanted their life back. They swore and got back to their own life. Okay, but it might be kind of naive to say that, but some of them, they actually definitely their own political and economic ambition. However, the British government did not fully trust them, so I would say their lives were miserable. They were fighting for a cause like against their neighbors, sometimes even their friends and family. But on the other hand, the government they were loyal to, or they tried to be loyal to, did not fully trust them and limit their power. Why do you think, even
0: in scholarship, uh, the loyalist perspective, has been so neglected over the last 150 years?
1: That, that is a really interesting question, and I have to humbly say that I do not know, and that I cannot speak for all the wonderful historians prior to me, but I guess it is nature to focus on the winner, first of all. And second, when you try to tell a story of a national history, the loyalists, since they did not like the idea of independence, are easy to be neglected in narrative because they could not represent the founding spirit of this country. And then remember that after the revolution, the 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 point of writing history became to try to establish the identity of a new a new form or new formulated country. So loyalists as kind of traitor to the to the American cause, become it's very easy to just fade away from the history, unless for except for the genealogical purpose. Yeah, however, I I have to say that there were actually a lot of works on Loyalists published since nineteen, especially since nineteen sixties. Are really wonderful.
0: In your article, you write about a man named Thomas Jones, very prominent Loyalist in New York. Tell us about him.
1: Okay, Thomas John was a judge of the New York Provincial Supreme Court and was the author of the history of New York during the Revolutionary War. So he wrote it sometime between 1783 and 1788 while he was exiled in England. But his manuscript was never published until 1879 in New York by the New York Historical Society. And actually it's kind of a pretty interesting fact that we can, can link to your previous question about the historiography. So his manuscript was not published because, probably because no one felt like it was to be published. But after the Civil War, the, the editor for, for this volume actually pointed, pointed out that, so after the Civil War, people have more, people have more like, they value loyalty more. So at that point of time, it became more appropriate to publish a book about the history of the people who tried to be loyal to their current government, So which is really interesting. How did Jones
0: define or identify the causes of the revolution? Of course, from the loyalist
1: perspective. Okay, so when he recalled his wartime experience and even tried to track the causes of the American Revolution, he took two different perspectives. The first one was a local perspective and the second one was imperial. So locally speaking, he structured it as a war between the dissenters and the Anglicans. He was a member of the Church of England, so he blamed the dissenters for being radical in ideas and being ambitious for their political and economic interests. So, for example, in his description, William Smith, which is the, the other figure in my article, he was a, for him, he was a man villain that led to all those resistance movements for political interests. And he believed that such partisan divisions stimulate the crisis, it makes things even worse. And then one thing can after another, eventually caused the revolution. So, so he's, in this way, he saw the, the imperial crisis or saw the, um, the American revolution in a local way, in a local perspective. But imperially speaking, he saw the stampede was a mistake. I mean... So that's why the editor of this volume said that it is not a, history, a British history, but it's an American history because Thomas Jones he is definitely is he's still on the American point of view. He thought that the Stamp Act was a mistake. He preferred to maintain the relationship between the mother country and its colonies that had been proven to be effective in the previous years. So he admitted that the British. The Briton made mistakes. However, he did not think the mistake was serious enough to break the tie between mother country and the colony. So while blending the British did not compromise. He also accused the revolutionaries for being too radical, too ambitious, and too arbitrary and push the situation to the extreme.
0: You also analyze a man named William Smith. Could you tell us about him?
1: Okay, William Smith was a pretty interesting example in this story. So he was a firm American Whig, Like Thomas Jones complained a lot in his book, that Smith was among the leadership of many resistance movements happening in New York after 1763. Even before the Stamp Act, Smith led the protest against the request of an American bishop of of the Anglican Church and also against the establishment of King's College. So he, William Livingston, and John Ma- Maureen Scott, they co-founded and co-edited a weekly journal called Independent Reflector, promoting the idea of liberty and defending colonial right. So he he also married a daughter of Livingston family. So you know, if you look at his resume, you'll feel like he it, he was absolutely going to be a patriot instead of a lawless however his attitude toward the revolution had been so I mean however he changed his attitude and then his attitude toward the revolution had been regarded as, as suspicious and ambiguous before the revolution he wrote two volumes history of New York Governor Cohen was really unhappy about what he wrote in his history he even wrote a letter to Smith's father complaining about complaining about it so Smith's father could only say that he could not control what his sons wrote. So you can see that he, he, the history he published was not very welcome by the by the royal government. So you can you can tell something about that from that. And then we can see that he had almost every reason to become a patriot. However, he chose a complete opposite way.
0: How was his perspective different from Jones?
1: Okay, I will say, you know, in the beginning he was very he, he held a pretty um, how to say it, ambiguous position. So let me, let me point out one more thing that um, so you know, when I do the research for the for the New York law list, the first archival document I found was a summons from the Committee of the Congress of New York to William Smith. So so I found this document in the New York Public Library, and that was so fascinating to me. That was like seven years ago. So that is a summon for the Committee of the Congress of New York to William Smith, asking him to declare himself to be a friend to the American cause. So when I read this, because now I'm from Taiwan, and Chiang kai she son passed away when I was six years old, so those authoritarian days were not too far away for me. So while saw this, while read this document, I was kind of surprised and shocked to find such an uh, arbitrary document. Like, and then, so only after years later, I found out how he responded to this summons. I mean, he responded to uh, he responded on July the fourth by claiming his loyalty to the interests and fortune of this country and then but it's ambiguous because since um, the interest of, for, and fortune of this country could be could mean very different things for different people so I would say he, when he was asked to express whether he supported the American cause he gave a pretty ambiguous answer and then on June the 5th 1777, Smith was asked again to give, declare his loyalty to the American cause. The first question put to Smith was whether I consider myself as the subject of the independent state of America. And he, his answer was, I was ever against it as destructive of the interests of the colony. And he further stated that, I considered myself as a subject of King George Third of Great Britain and a member of the or British government. So you can see that his his, um, his standpoint was really firm about being a loyalist. And then back to your question about, so how how was his perspective different from Jones? So, I mean, first of all, they were definitely not friends. We can tell that but reading all the criticism that Jones wrote about Smith. But they both believed that the British Parliament make mistakes, and they both believe that Great Britain should not attempt to alter the, this already proven colonial system. So Jones, he admitted that the necessity and importance of right and liberty while complaining about the mistakes that the British made, that the Britain made. However, Smith was ever more empathetic to the American claims. So in his historical memory and his justification of the law cause, He did not alter this basic assumption which was that the British government made a mistake in altering the imperial policies and breaking the old norms that had sustained this imperial relationship. But that that was what he meant by examining the revolution by weak principles. He criticized almost every action that the British had taken in this crisis. And Smith believed that the sources of the Animosities was the pride and averse ever rise of um, Great Britain in assuming an authority inconsistent with the compact by which the empire had been long profoundly united. So Smith's claimed that colonial resistance was justifiable since representation and petition had been tried without effect. So, and what could be expected from the more influence of dissertations against the pur- purchase of the duty articles. So, the British reaction to the colonial resistance, such as the coercive Act, for him was utterly unjustifiable and an infraction of the League. However, he believed that it was the duty of the American assemblies and of the Congress acting for the whole continent to tender a plan to the mother country for restoring peace so even though the british the britain made so many mistakes he did not believe that it would justify the patriot to a revolutionary to reject british sovereignty altogether and even to launch and rebellion so he accused the patriot of overstating their claims of right and patriot No, the Patriots claimed an exclusive right of legislation not only in taxation but also in their internal policy. And Smith believed that such claim was a departure in terms from the original league since it left no authority to the Parliament of of Great Britain over the plantations. So America would therefore become the the ally of Britain not a member of the empire. So we can see that William Smith, he really focused on seeing the whole empire as a seeing the whole the empire as a whole, and he didn't believe that America should leave the empire. And but, however, in his writing, he kept criticizing all those British acts. And Jones was more conservative. Although he did not have any complaint about the Great Britain, he kept his complaint in minimum although he did have sorry, although he did have complaints about the Great Britain, he kept his complaint in minimum and tried to point out the irony the irony that the Continental Congress, while claiming to pursue liberty, refused to allow different opinions and persecute those who did not support them. On the other hand, Smith applied wicked principle within the limitation of his cultural presuppositions. He tried to be a defender of liberty, but for him, liberty and rights were rooted in a specific social and political context, which was the British Constitution. He believed that the true liberty had to be sought within the British system for him. Yes, I want liberty, but I want British liberty as a British subject. I do not want American liberty that is not a part of a British liberty because I do not know what it is. And it can be a chaos, so that's I think mean, that's a different. Jones was, was more conservative, and 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 Smith was more a little bit more radical. But however, his radicalism is limited by his imagination of the empire and of the British constitution.
0: What are you working on next?
1: Oh, I'm working on my I'm writing my dissertation right now, so. Actually, this article is a part of one of my dissertation chapters. So, in my dissertation, I search for the cultural roots of New York loyalism. I analyze loyalist writings and dig into the cultural assumption behind their political ideology. I have finished two chapters my first chapter and the last chapter. My first chapter defines and explains how we should view loyalism as a cultural phenomenon and not just a political. Or social event, and my my last chapter talks about how the how the historical memory after revolution reflect their cultural presuppositions. So the chapter I'm working on right now is about the uh, Anglican loyalists like Thomas Jones. I explore how their religious worldview influenced the way they applied their cultural tools. So we have all. We all are familiar with the discussion about whether the America is a Christian country or whether it was founded on Christian principle. Many people believe and argue that the American Revolution was inspired by God, especially Christian God, and the Constitution was God given or at least God inspired. However, the Anglican lawless, they also used religious rhetoric to argue for the lawless cause. So the chapter I'm working on right now is about how they use religious arguments to criticize the revolutionaries and to strengthen the loyalist cause. I mean, you can see the both sides. A lot of times we, we always remember how the patriots, how the founders, the founding fathers, they used religion as a tool to even to either persuade people or mobilize people. But we forgot that the opposite side of the story. The loyalists they also use religions, they also use Bible, they also use their religion to persuade people to remain loyal to the British crown. So I want to tell this that part of the story in this in the chapter I'm working on right now.
0: Cho Chen thank you for joining us. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin MacLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia.